You're listening to What Goes On Here, and I'm Sam Walker. Whoever we are, and whatever we do, we all have moments when we feel like we don't quite fit with the world around us. What Goes On Here is where you can listen to real stories of people who at times couldn't see a way forward, people who found themselves stuck, maybe in a life they never imagined would be theirs, people who had to face their fears, face themselves, but they changed and change lives of people around them too. On season two, this is episode six, Danelle. Danelle Padilla-Peralta is a leading academic. He's been called the greatest intellectual brain of a generation. He's currently assistant professor of classics at Princeton. I, I, I never in my wildest dreams expected that upon opening this letter, I would discover that I had won this academic award. And uh, when I opened it, I, for I think the last time in my life, cried. But Danelle wasn't born into privilege or opportunity. He was raised in poverty, in homeless shelters across New York City, and then in poor quality housing in often dangerous neighbourhoods. There was a shooting right across the street from our apartment building. A teenager was killed. Uh, the next day, there were there was still blood on the park bench across the street from our apartment building. After that, uh, there were there were a lot of police. But furthermore, Danel also grew up living in constant fear that he may be forced to leave his home at any time, because he and his mother were undocumented, what some people refer to as illegal immigrants. It definitely simmered underneath the surface. Uh, the fear that I, at some point, would have to disclose publicly my status problem um, was one that left me with a great deal of anxiety. When the only place you've ever called home is not a place where you feel secure, how can you feel like you ever belong? When you're forced to keep a secret from everyone around you, how can you ever relax? And how do you strive for the future when you're not sure you even have one? Even my responses to moments of joy uh, were haunted by anxiety. It is very hard for me to be truly happy about things because somewhere I suspect that uh, things are about to flip in a pretty dramatic way. I'd love to know your very first memories of the USA. My first memories of the U.S. all involved the subway. Uh, I was very fond of riding the subway when I was a kid. And when we arrived at the States, we usually had to take the subway several times a week to see my family scattered in uh, the, the four boroughs. And so I would get on the N uh, or the 123 or the B and D, and I would make sure to get my parents to let me sit in the front car. And I would peer out from the front car window and look at the tracks in front of us. You came here, of course, aged just four, because your mum, pregnant with your brother, was, was really poorly, and that's why you travelled to the state, so she could get that prenatal care. That's right. Uh, my mom had been diagnosed with a severe case of gestational diabetes, uh, and so her doctors, uh, after running her through some tests, uh, strongly advised her to seek prenatal care in the United States. And initially, uh, when my parents decided to seek out that prenatal care, the understanding was that we would be in the States only for a few months, enough for my mom to get the care she needed, for my brother to be born, and then it would be time for us to return to the Dominican Republic where I had been born. Your brother was born safely, luckily, happily, but unfortunately after that your mother grew really sick again, had to have more treatment, and it was this around this time, I guess, this time you weren't expected to stay, that the visa ran out, the papers ran out. That's right. Uh, my mom had to be rehospitalized. She had an infection of her uh, cesarean section and 
uh, as she recovered, my parents uh, began to talk about the possibility of our staying. Uh, we had, because of my mom's rehospitalization, overstayed our visas. Uh, we were also in the position of not being sure whether my parents' employment in the Dominican Republic uh, would be reauthorized for them. And so after a lot of back and forth, uh, my mom, inspired by how I was doing in kindergarten by that point in time, I'd been enrolled in school for a few months, encouraged my dad and convinced my dad uh, to stay in the United States. So even at that teeny young age, education was at the absolute cornerstone of your mother's decision? It was her central value. It was her enduring commitment. She wanted for both my brother and me to obtain the very best educational opportunities. And when she saw that I really enjoyed the classrooms, uh, that... I'd entered as a kindergartner, and that I really enjoyed learning English, uh, that I was intent on parroting anyone and everyone who spoke English and was working hard to learn English. She thought that it was uh, her obligation to see to it that my brother and I had this opportunity in New York. Wasn't one of the um, ways you learned English Jean-Claude Van Damme movies? <laughs> That's right. I watched a lot of Jean-Claude Van Damme movies when I was younger. Uh, this was mainly because my cousins and my uncle and aunt had a TV in one of the back rooms of their apartment, and they would always watch movies, but they were very fond of Jean-Claude Van Damme movies. And it was with Jean-Claude Van Damme that I learned some of the choicest curse words in the English <laughs> language. Your mother had, had got better, luckily, after after your brother was born. But life was hard. Life was tough. What, what was it like? Because you were poor. We moved around a lot. Uh, and we moved around because my parents couldn't maintain steady employment. Uh, since we didn't have proper immigration authorization and my parents didn't have a work authorization, every few months uh, my dad and my mom would take up new jobs. Uh, so we hopped around from an apartment in Washington Heights to an apartment in the Bronx, uh, then to an apartment in Corona, Queens, another apartment in Jackson Heights, another apartment in Jackson Heights. Uh, we made occasional uh, overnights uh, at uh, my aunt's place in Astoria, Queens. We were jumping around all over the place. And meanwhile, my dad was working as a cab driver. He was operating a fruit stand. He was working in a factory. He was writing short pieces for a newspaper, as my mom was as well, uh, anything and everything to try to keep food on the table. Your dad eventually went back to the Dominican Republic due to work. He couldn't find the employment. And then things got really tough financially. So when he left, uh, my mom was convinced that she would be able to support us on her own. And to that end, she took up a babysitting job and, and, and did some house cleaning. But it wasn't enough. Eventually, a few months after my dad left, we were evicted from our apartment uh, in Queens. And after a short stay in the basement of a friend's home, uh, we uh, entered the shelter system uh, in New York. Uh, and we spent the majority of the entirety of my fourth grade year uh, first at a shelter uh, in Manhattan and then at a shelter in Brooklyn. That first shelter that you were at in the Lower East Side, describe what conditions were like and describe how you coped as a family and how your mother coped with her children being in a homeless shelter. Oh, the conditions were pretty grim. Uh, so my memories of the shelter mostly revolve around the smells, and particularly the smell of the bathroom. Uh, so the bathroom... There were communal bathrooms, and the one closest to us uh, on our floor uh, was kept in very poor condition. Uh, and my mom was really terrified about even letting us use the bathroom on our own, my brother and me. Uh, because it was uh, a, a men's only bathroom, uh, she couldn't go with us to use the bathroom and could not uh, monitor us while we were showering uh, in, in this bathroom, uh, which uh, frustrated her to no end. 
the other memories I have of the shelter, though, also revolve around a very peculiar feature of this shelter in particular. Uh, because it had been converted from a public school building, it had a library. And I did not have anything to do in the evening since the families in the shelter had a curfew. Uh, we all had to report back. Uh, but there was this resource, the shelter library, that was available to the children uh, living there. And so I spent most of my evenings in the library of the shelter. Because you had no toys, you had no games, you had no TV. We had my friends at public school talked about their game systems. Uh, they, they had Nintendo, which I, I was fascinated by. It was this abstract, uh, purely uh, ideational thing. Uh, but I didn't have access to that. Um, but I did have these books at the Shelter Library, and they allowed me to... Uh, begin very slowly and painstakingly to imagine a future or set of futures for myself that would range beyond the shelter. Because in that library, and goodness me, where would your life have been if not for that library? Um, but in that library was one book, which is it fair to say changed your life? It was pretty revolutionary. Uh, this book was entitled How People Lived in Ancient Greece and Rome. And it had these amazing drawings and paintings um, uh, meant to appeal to an eight and nine year old's eye. Uh, but it also laid out this pretty remarkable argument that I had been expo I was exposed to for the first time. Uh, it was an argument about how the Greeks and Romans still live on with us today uh, and how their legacy pervades everything that we do. Uh, and to read about this, to learn about these people who were very far removed in time, but who were nonetheless still, in a sense, with us. Uh, was really mind-altering. It I blew my socks off uh, and inspired me to want to learn more about mm. them. And it was because of that that your mother enrolled you as well in, in this arts program, this summer arts program, um, when you were in the shelter in Brooklyn. There you met somebody who then had a huge impact on your life and was very influential in your life, Jeff. Tell me about Jeff. Jeff was a volunteer who had been working at the arts program uh, by training a photographer, but someone who, uh, having been the beneficiary of this incredibly privileged education and upbringing in New York, felt it was his responsibility to uh, pay it forward. Uh, and he, one day while teaching an arts class, uh, saw me reading by myself in a corner, uh, which I tended to do when I was young. And he just approached me and started asking me questions about the book I was reading and why I was reading it. Uh, I took advantage of this opportunity to spill out all the facts that I had gleaned from all my reading ever, uh, I guess, to impress him. Uh, and he took a real liking to me. Um, and from that moment forward, he became uh, the most dependable and invaluable advocate for me and for my family uh, and the major force behind uh, my family's decision to apply me to admission mm -hmm. for uh, one of the New York City private schools. Did you yearn for that world? Were you afraid of it? How did you feel about this kind of window to this other world he opened? So I was by turns both desirous of it and intimidated by it. Um, I realized that there was a world of privilege out there that uh, was at its core dramatically different in uh, the range of opportunities it presented uh, to uh, those who were fortunate enough to reside in it. Uh, it was a world that had all the books I could ever dream of, right? 
but I also was intimidated by it because I I had deep insecurities stemming in part from my own upbringing about whether I would be able to negotiate these transitions between the many different worlds that now presented themselves to me, the world of my uh, community, first in the shelter system, and then after we were placed out of the shelter system, uh, the world of my immediate family, um, and then this other world that seemed to be one radically disconnected from the experiences that I'd had growing up. Uh, and so trying to make sense of that difference took up most of my teenage years. You spent an entire school grade within the homeless system. You did eventually get an apartment in Harlem. You've already mentioned a multitude of places you've lived across New York. Now again was a new neighborhood to go and live in, a new set of friends, a new building, a new school. Uh, so it was it was all jarring initially um, to be thrown again into this entirely different space and this different community. But I realized that in some important ways, um, this was the community I, I wanted, the community I needed. Uh, it really gave me an empowered sense of self. Give me an idea of the place you called home, your building, your apartment, the neighborhood. Paint a picture. So when we were placed out of the shelter system and moved into Central Harlem, we lived on 122 Bradhurst Avenue uh, on 148th Street in Central Harlem. Uh, this building has since been raised and it has been replaced by condos. At the time when we were placed in this building, the building was structurally unsound, although we did not know this. Uh, we only learned about this somewhat later when the building was condemned by the city and we were uh, reassigned to a new building uh, in a property also owned by the city. Uh, our building was covered with dust. I mean, there was dust everywhere. Uh, and it had very serious plumbing and heating issues. So during the winter, the heating, or the calefacción, as we call it in Spanish, would go out constantly or not work. Um, the, the water, tap water in particular, uh, had uh, it was clogged with dirt. I mean, there were, at, at one point, my mom, to make the point to one of our neighbors, if we let the tap water run, and these clods of stuff were coming out. Um, so those conditions were then made even worse by the blackouts that our building had, um, which were pretty frequent. Uh, even though we had uh, these uh, circumstances uh, interacting with our daily experiences, mom was remarkable for not letting those circumstances dent her optimism about uh, our futures. Uh, she was very determined to remind us that uh, no matter what we were going through, this was just a stage on the journey. Uh, and she kept that optimism up, even though my brother and I began to feel that this was pretty horrific uh, and that this was not where we wanted to be. What about the people, your neighbors, people who are living in your building and, and on your block? Our neighbors ranged from folks who were on the struggle like we were uh, and um, who were also immigrants, um, first or second generation, uh, to folks who were struggling with pretty serious uh, drug and alcohol addiction. One of our neighbors downstairs uh, had had pretty serious drug issues um, and who were being underserved by the city in, in many different and horrible ways. Uh, my interactions with them were always colored and filtered through uh, my mom's fear uh, one that was, in hindsight, not the most rational, but that reflected her uh, parenting instincts uh, at, at their, their most ratcheted up, that in interacting with them, I might become 
drug dependent or alcohol dependent. Uh, she was very paranoid about this. She constantly stressed about this. Uh, and she stressed about it so much that she really insisted that we not interact with many of our neighbors. Um, but I, I still wanted to interact with them because I, I thought some of them seemed like interesting people. So from time to time when mom wasn't around, I would uh, talk to them and ask them questions. And some of them had really fascinating experiences. I mean, quite a few of the neighbors, uh, including one with whom I had a series of conversations, uh, were vets. Uh, folks who had fought in Vietnam or after and who uh, had since been, uh, as I mentioned earlier, just underserved uh, in all kinds of ways. Um, but those were the, the nature and extent of my interactions. There are also a lot of kids uh, on our block and on the adjacent block. Uh, and some of those kids did not take too kindly to this nerd who read all the time. Uh, so there's some pretty serious ass kickings that took place. Um, but uh, that was part of my neighborhood life too. I mean, apart from the teenage ass kicking, was violence part of the neighbor? Did you witness any violence? So there was a there was a fair bit of violence. Uh, so there were a series of turf wars playing themselves out in the mid to late nineties uh, in my stretch of central Harlem. Uh, we were a short walk away from the Polo Grounds projects, uh, where there had uh, also been a pretty concentrated burst of violence. Um, the response of the city was to convert my neighborhood uh, into a militarized zone. Of the memories I have, many of them involved the sight of police. Uh, police were always around. There was a shooting uh, that occurred right across the street from our apartment building. A teenager was killed. Uh, the next day, there were there was still blood on the park bench across the street from our apartment building. Uh, and uh, after that, uh, there were there were a lot of police. Uh, there were everywhere all the time uh, they uh, were very concerned to ensure that uh, people were not being truant uh, and were in school but they were not the kindest either uh, I, when I was in high school as I describe in the book um, police knocked down the door to my apartment uh, while uh, thinking that there was a drug stash in the apartment uh, and it turned out that they had mixed up uh, the apartments in my building that the stash was actually in another apartment they were not terribly apologetic about this and even though my mom was grateful that nothing bad had happened to her or to us i became really frustrated uh, to see how they dealt with the neighborhoods in which i lived and also to see the circumstances that beleaguered uh, the people living in my neighborhood so there you are this is your neighborhood this is your life this is your reality and then you start visiting through a scheme that you're part of called prep which introduces kids who are from underprivileged backgrounds who have challenges to the private school system in New York City. And you visit, first of all, a school on the Upper East Side. And you say in the book, I'd never seen so many white people at once together, which was alien to you. But at the same time, you write, I knew I wanted to be part of this world. There's that dichotomy. There was this incredible ambivalence I had uh, in being exposed to the school on the Upper East Side um, because it was everything my public school wasn't. Uh, it was clean, it had all these books. There were very nutritional uh, lunch options, uh, and I had, by that point, uh, had grown uh, accustomed to and frustrated by uh, the uh, very limited offerings uh, at public school lunch. And at the same time, it was totally, totally alien in ways that I could not even fully comprehend. I mean, the fact, uh, as you mentioned, that uh, there are all these white people at the school, uh, blew me away, uh, not least because it also planted a, a seed in my mind that 
uh, there was something in play structurally that made my school, uh, which was majority minority, my PS 200, uh, predominantly African-American, Dominican and Puerto Rican. Uh, and this other school, which was majority, majority, majority with what appeared to me to be an entirely white student body, um, to be on two poles of the educational experience. And so my, my drive became to get some of what these students at this privileged place uh, were getting. But at the same time, I felt this tension that stemmed in part from the realization that things were so different and there was no apparent explanation for why they were so different. You had some ups and downs um, whilst applying for, for private school. You eventually got accepted to collegiate on the Upper West Side of New York. You said for you, collegiate was not just a school. Can you explain? Collegiate was a community, uh, it, it, and it was a, a community of, of students and teachers and mentors uh, who were all very welcoming. But even though it was a welcoming community, there were some real um, and enduring problems I confronted uh, while I was there. The first was that earlier, you know, I would mentioned that I had seen that uh, this school on the Upper East Side uh, was uh, pretty much all white. Well, Collegia was pretty much all white too. Um, and in as much as I had not seen so many white students concentrate in one place, they had never met someone quite like me. And their first instinct, the, inst- the temptation on the part of quite a few of the students I interacted with was to essentialize me, to think that, oh, uh, he's from central Harlem, so he must know about rap, or you know, he, uh, he must know what's hood and streets. Like, I was like, you know, I, I'm more than happy to play this game, you know, I, we, I, but that, that's not who I am at all. So that was one challenge. The other challenge was that I initially had a hard time with some of my teachers um, because some teachers were just, for a variety of reasons, not equipped to deal with my difference or not equipped to help me figure out my own struggles, which were all ultimately related to the fact that I was an immigrant, undocumented, living in New York City and living in Harlem uh, and commuting every day to this uh, ritzy private school. Uh, so even though I felt very very warmly received at Collegiate, uh, it was also at that point in time in some ways not well configured uh, to give me the structural support I needed. Because comparison is the enemy of contentment, I find. And there you are in your apartment at home, your your weekend life, your after-school life with no heating, with blackouts, with people being shot in the street outside, with crack addicts living in your building. I mean, that was your reality. And yet none of your schoolmates knew that. None of your schoolmates living in their Upper West Side apartments going on holidays to places you'd never heard of even knew that that was your life. They didn't know, and I wasn't particularly prepared or willing to tell them. Uh, Why was that? It was partly because I, I had reservations, not only about whether I would be able to adequately communicate it to them, not only about whether I wanted to sort of take a put myself out there as someone who was very different. I was concerned above all that they just wouldn't care, or they would care too much, and they would want to know so much about it in some pretend fake empathetic way. Uh, that I, I would find it intolerable, right? As I grew older, and I did develop, uh, and I developed closer friends at Collegiate, uh, people whom I really came to trust, I was then saddled with a third um, burden, which is that I didn't think 
it was fair. I didn't think it made much sense to offload uh, my discontent uh, on them. I, I just didn't want to stress them out. <laughs> it's like, I, I don't... I don't want you to feel unhappy because I'm dealing with this crap. And so those factors all combine to make me very, 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 very hesitant to speak out about uh, the uh, hurdles that my family and I were facing on a daily basis. So you have this world playing out on the Upper West Side. And yet when you return home to, to Harlem in Spanish Harlem, you don't wear your school uniform because you would have, as you put in your book, I've got your ass kicked. So did you feel you were being authentic in both of those different worlds? Because you couldn't kind of fully present as you in either of them, could you? So there was a, a word that gained a lot of followers uh, in its deployment at Khalid while I was there. It was, it was the word poser. So there's a lot, a lot of slinging around of this term. At times I felt like a poser because I felt I was, I was inhabiting this, this fabricated identity. At other times, though, it felt very authentic that I would have this split life. It just seemed to be the life that I would have to lead. Uh, and it would be one that involved my presenting different faces of myself um, to the faces that I met um, on a daily basis. It came with some psychic costs because one is never sure of who one is, um, but it also allowed me a space for imaginative play. So even though I was in some respects a poser, uh, I thought that it was okay to be a poser. Um, because, you know, I also didn't want to get my ass kicked, you know, so, you know. <laughs> You mentioned the, the phone call from your mom, the frantic phone call when you were at school at Collegiate saying there's a drugs bus going on in our apartment and the police are there and you had to sit there and smile down the phone and not let on to your classmates because, let's face it, none of their apartments yeah. would have been called for a drugs bus. But an additional layer to this was that fear that runs like a scene through your life that your status would be revealed, that your illegal, undocumented, whatever phrase you want to give it, would be revealed. And was that the fear that was always there under the surface? It definitely simmered underneath the surface. Uh, the fear that I, at some point, would have to disclose publicly my status problem um, was one that, uh, beginning in my uh, high school years and then continuing after high school, uh, left me with a great deal of anxiety. My realization of what it meant to be undocumented came very incrementally. Uh, I realized when we were still in the shelter system and immediately after that um, my family wasn't eligible for any kind of public assistance benefits except those for which my brother was eligible, and my brother was eligible for these because he was a U.S. citizen. I then, a few years later, discovered that I couldn't work. Uh, I you know, I, I wasn't legally here. I didn't have any authorization. Uh, being undocumented posed a serious hurdle uh, to my applying to colleges and my getting financial aid. I didn't qualify for any federal financial aid. All of these realizations added up uh, over time, and they collectively cohered uh, to give me a sense of myself as undocumented. I was not capable of uh, receiving uh, these certain things that would normally uh, be granted to people who had a regular I status. And I was also 
in a state of structural disadvantage. I mean, for me, for example, the idea that I would one day be able to vote <clears throat> was a total fantasy. I mean, I, I, I knew that unlike uh, my teenage friends who in some in some conversations would talk about wanting to vote and like getting involved in politics, I was like, when is that going to happen for me? Like, I don't have that. But all of that meant that um, when it came time to really sort of let some people in on the secret, because let's, you know, as I began to realize, I could not keep this concealed forever. I was at a loss for the words that I would use to explain uh, what it was uh, that I had going on in my life. Was it, would I tell everyone this story of how we had fallen out of immigration status when we arrived in the United States? And then, of course, they would ask, well, why didn't you fix that? Like, why didn't your family fix that? And I didn't want to answer those questions either, probably because I thought those questions were stupid. I mean, I was like, look, you know, if you knew how poor we had been, this would uh, not be a start. But all of that made me feel uh, incredibly unreceptive to the idea uh, of uh, giving an accounting of my status until the day came and I had to do that. You write in the book when you're looking to apply to college and you have these incredible grades and you have these amazing letters of recommendation from professors and you're smart, I'll put it that way bluntly. <laughs> but you, you say how frustrated I was that every word of praise and every good grade I would ever receive would turn to dust the moment our secret of not having papers came out. That is huge pressure to live under. What did it feel like? Oh, it, I definitely felt it. Uh, at times, it drove me almost crazy. Uh, but the stress made me think that, well, really the only thing I can do is just to sort of work as hard as possible and hope that there is some resolution to this. But I also felt at times torn apart by this brooding, lingering uh, anxiety that no matter how hard I worked, it just wouldn't matter, right? It, it would uh, not bring about a change of my status. You get into Princeton. There's the headline. Incredible. As you said, you can't get financial aid because it comes through a federal system and you're undocumented. The college, however, fund you themselves. You get a letter after the end of your first year. It's for academic excellence. But when you get that letter in your apartment at home, your first feeling is fear because you think it's a letter about your status. It all comes back to that. Yeah, I, when this letter arrives, I first thought... Oh, this this has to be about my status. Then I also thought, well, I mean, maybe it could be about something else bad. Like maybe I inadvertently plagiarized while writing a paper or something like that. I mean, I I never in my wildest dreams expected that upon opening this letter, I would discover that I had won this academic award at Princeton. And uh, when I opened it, I for I think the last time in my life cried <laughs> I, because I was I was. I was so overwhelmed at the moment. I also opened it in the presence of my mom, and my mom was so proud of me. And I really felt that every so much of what I had done in my life up to that point, so much of what I've done in my life since then, uh, had been a form of thanking my mom uh, for this tremendous investment she had made. Uh, but even my responses to moments of joy uh, were haunted by anxiety. So as my now wife put it, it is very hard for me to be truly happy about things because somewhere I suspect that uh, things are about to flip in a pretty dramatic way. I'm always uh, anxious uh, about that. And this anxiety manifested itself in this incident like to, to an extent uh, unprecedented even for me uh, uh, at that point in my life. 
when you're at college, when you're at Princeton, some there's quite a few anti-immigration voices around, not just in the press, not just in politics, but actually amongst your peers. Mm. How, how did you respond to that? Because we must make it clear, they still didn't know. You hadn't told anybody. I wrestled a, a fair bit with uh, a number of discursive strategies for getting them to ditch their uh, anti-immigrant thoughts. So from time to time, I would have conversations with some of my classmates, uh, including my the beginning of my sophomore year, uh, someone whom I had a crush on for part of my freshman year. And she, I mean, she was resolutely anti-immigrant. I mean, I just there was no way of devising a set of arguments that it would have persuaded her. I mean, she was immovable. And after we had this very drawn-out argument that went nowhere, uh, I thought to myself, well, maybe I should have really played uh, the, 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 real, the only real card I have uh, and say, you know, I am undocumented. You know, I do not have status. Uh, what do you think of me now? You know. But I didn't. Uh, Why? And I didn't. Probably because I was afraid. Probably because, again, I didn't know if it would actually work. And I also didn't quite know how to take my story then and turn it around such that it wasn't simply or exclusively primarily a narrative of exceptionalism, right? So she could have very easily uh, said, okay, you are unique and special. I, I make an exception for you. But the others, well, you know, they, they are useless. You know, deport them all. And I was searching for a vocabulary and a toolkit that would enable me um, to, to slay that monster of exceptionalism too uh, and to get her to see that, in fact, all of the undocumented deserve fair and equal treatment. Uh, in the same way that when, a few years later, I had a similar exchange, this time with uh, one of my old roommates, uh, I tried there uh, to get him to see that it wasn't just a matter of one individual. Uh, it was really a question of how we treat uh, ethically and considerately an entire class of human beings who are, in the end, human beings. When you do decide to come out to your friends, how did it feel laying yourself bare, I suppose, before them? Well, it was a little anticlimactic. Uh, but I mean, some of them, quite justifiably, reproached me for not having confided in them uh, before. I mean, they were incredibly supportive. Uh, and uh, my, my fiercest champions, my, my best advocates uh, were uh, my friends at Princeton and then, of course, my high school friends who um, I'd remained in touch with. What I thought was so remarkable about them was that they... They were really willing to go out of their way to, to help me out. Uh, I came out publicly as undocumented uh, in a Wall Street Journal profile uh, that came out in the spring of 2006, um, not too long before I was set to graduate from college. Um, and when I had broken the news to them in advance of the profile's release, uh, they, they were immediately bent on coming up with any and every strategy uh, available to them to help me attain status so i mean several of them propositioned me and they were like you know we could get married or something and i was like no that's not gonna work out but you know that that's cool that you thought that uh you might do this for me um and they all wanted to know how they could become involved like what they what steps they could take uh to help undocumented uh immigrants and that was the most heartening thing was to see them 
uh, becoming in the course of their support of me, the individual, more concerned about uh, the body of undocumented immigrants as a whole. So you finish Princeton and it then dawns on you, I guess, the reality of your status or lack of status because you can't go and get a job. You're offered a course at Oxford University in England, but you're aware that if you get on a plane, there's a very, very high risk. You will not be allowed back into the country. But but you took it. You did it. You you went to Oxford. I did, yeah. Uh, and the reasoning for making that decision was pretty much because at a certain point it became crystal clear that I didn't really have much in the way of a choice. Um, I mean, I was a publicly identified undocumented immigrant. So good luck getting any kind of employment when everyone knows that you're undocumented. And so I decided uh, to head to the UK and then try my hand at, at life in the UK. Uh, the one over major terrifying concern was that as someone who had been undocumented in the States, I was subject to uh, what's called the 10-year bar. Uh, and uh, when I left for Oxford, I left with the full knowledge that I might not be allowed back in the States for 10 years. And I mean, one, uh, it was perfectly conceivable that it'd be more than 10 years. I mean, no, no one really knew uh, at that point uh, what I might expect um, from uh, the U.S. State Department. Uh, and it was with that anxiety in mind that I started my graduate studies at Oxford. What did it feel like when the plane took off? Uh, I felt that I was entering a stage of my life for which I had no real advanced preparation. Because you may never have seen your mother again in reality, because with her not being a citizen, she couldn't leave the States. If you then couldn't get back into the States, you're in a catch-22. Right. Uh, So that thought was not far from my mind. Uh, First, when I flew over, and then during my early days at at Oxford, I I missed my mom a great deal. You know, all we had uh, were phone calls, uh, and mom uh, developed a letter-writing habit uh, that uh, was very fun to be on the receiving end of. Those two phone calls and letters uh, were what uh, helped me maintain a sense of my sanity when I felt during my early months at Oxford uh, that it was quite likely that I would not be able to see her for a long time. The process you then had to go through, we could talk about for the next several hours, I'm sure, because it was so complicated, your your various forms of communication with the Department for Immigration in the US. I mean, Hillary Clinton was involved in your campaign. Bill Clinton phoned President George W. Bush to try and support you. Still, you were refused several times, actually, until you got a, a work visa, temporary work visa, to return to Princeton after you'd been to Oxford. What was it like coming back to the States, knowing that you were back here to work? Because it's the only place you'd ever thought of as home, and yet legally, it's not your home. It was uh, pretty tough on me, uh, psychologically, um, for several reasons. The first was that even though I, I was exhilarated, at the prospect of returning. Uh, I knew that I was returning uh, solely uh, because I had received permission, uh, been authorized to do so by a a State Department and by an immigration service that could at any time rescind that permission. Uh, It was entirely up to their discretion. It became clearer and clearer to me that the idea that I had a stable home, that 
I could access at any time was just that, an idea. Uh, in reality, uh, it was more often than not the case that uh, access to this vision of home uh, was repeatedly denied to me and that I, as a consequence, would have to develop uh, a series of strategies uh, to try to reimagine for myself home as the place where the heart is, uh, to, to paraphrase Elliot. That's exhausting. Yeah, it's tiring. You know, it's tiring. But I, of course, it also has since provided me with uh, the opportunity uh, to think more critically about what it is that we mean when we talk about home in the first place. And what then is home for people who are denied access, uh, who are shut out of home, uh, who are deported from their homes, who are forced to flee their homes? These are all very much on my mind uh, these days, and I think they should be on many other folks' minds, too, as, as issues and problems to work out in our moment. So today, what is your status? My status is that, is that of a authorized to work in the United States immigrant who is awaiting a pronouncement on his permanent residency application. So this is a, a mouthful. Uh, basically, what I am at the moment uh, is a file being processed by the United States Citizenship and Immigration Services. Um, I longtime girlfriend and I got married. She, a U.S. citizen by birth, filed uh, for me um, as her spouse to obtain permanent residency. Our application has been mired in bureaucracy ever since. Uh, And it is unlikely to be uh, retrieved from this bureaucracy anytime soon. So we will just cross our fingers. The one issue that, you know, we touched on earlier that has always been front and center in the work I've tried to do with the memoir and other projects is to get folks to move away from this idea of the model immigrant or the exceptional immigrant uh, or the the one for whom an exception should be made, right? Because uh, as I as I've told uh, people, if you had arrived at this shelter in Chinatown, Manhattan, when I was eight or nine. You could have seen me in a library reading, but you would have had no real way of guessing that one day I would be uh, teaching at Princeton. And you sh- I, I would encourage people to play this out with all of the many other immigrants they encounter. Right? Just because someone uh, is an extremist now does not mean uh, that they are not capable of great things if given the opportunity. And it's, I think, vitally urgent now more than ever uh, for us to have really robust conversations about the best ways of ensuring that all of the members of our communities receive full and equal access to the opportunities that will enable them to realize their potential. I think a central tenet of being human, whether you're incredibly privileged, whether you're underprivileged, whether you're an immigrant, whether you're a citizen, we all struggle with a sense of who we are we quite often ask ourselves, who am I? What do I stand for? You've asked yourself that question more than any of us, no doubt. And your answer's more complicated than most of us can imagine. Who are you today? I am the voice of someone crying out in the desert. Do right by immigrants. That's, I guess, what I see myself as doing. I see myself as someone who... In, in spite of these many structural obstacles, also benefited um, from this incredible education. And with that incredible sequence of opportunities has also come an invitation uh, to greater ethical commitment. So I see myself 
as someone who was beholden uh, to the communities that nurtured me uh, and to the communities that continue to do the work uh, of nurturing many others who are in different and but not radically different ways arriving at the same set of questions about themselves and their identities. Uh, so in the end, I see myself as an educator, really, uh, and that I think is one of the, the nobler uh, forms of identity there is out there. Danel Padilla Peralta was speaking to me, Sam Walker. His book, Undocumented, is out now. It reads like a novel, despite being his autobiography, and it is well worth reading. You've been listening to What Goes On Here. Coming up next, Season 3, Episode 1, Paul. I couldn't have been any lower. You know, I, I couldn't sleep. I had insomnia for quite a few uh, few weeks and months, actually. I was overtraining. So I was a, I was a physical specimen, but emotionally I was as weak as a kitten. <laughs>